Welcome to Daring Two, a podcast that finds out how CEOs and entrepreneurs navigate today's business world. The conventions they're breaking, the challenges they faced, and the decisions that they've made. And lastly, just what makes them different. Well, joining me today on Daring Two is CEO Nelson uh, Siva Lingham, who is the CEO of How Now. What a great name for a business, How Now. I mean, it's like the question that everybody wants to ask about anything that's going on in the world right now. So tell us a little bit about what How Now is, because I guess it could be a lot of different things, but put it in your own words. How would you describe your business? Yeah, sure. So Rita, thanks for having me on first. And, and I guess How Now is, it's a workplace learning platform, and we essentially connect people with relevant learning at the point of need so they can work smarter and, and upskill faster. Um, and that's essentially what we do. And we work with organizations everywhere from your kind of fast growing scale ups all the way up to your corporate enterprises. So I've got to say, I've, been pre- I've got to be impressed by you. For a guy that started his first business when he was at university, how do you get to them from making t-shirts to designing and putting together an online pl- learning platform, which right now must be incredibly in demand. So, you know, where did that kind of entrepreneurial spirit come from? I mean, cartoon T-shirts to filmmaking, I believe. Um, do you want to kind yeah, of allude I, to that I, a little bit? I, I think the filmmaking came first. I think there was always a, a love for films. Uh, myself and my brother, we both loved it. My mum pretty much says she raised us on, on a movie diet. And, and so you know, naturally you watch a lot of films. One day you think, oh, I could make better films and then got into it like that. So we ended up kind of setting up our production company. I call it a production company, but it was really a vehicle for us to get paid to, to make commercials, music videos, and, um, and then naturally get that money to make our own films. And um, the t-shirt business, I think, Every entrepreneur of a certain generation, probably as a rite of passage, has had a T-shirt printing business at some point. And our one was just like that at university uh, to my friends and myself. We were like, yeah, you know what? A T-shirt that expresses how you feel would be great. Um, We then applied for a a little loan or or actually a grant that the university gives to support entrepreneurs. Um, And I went to Aston University and we got the grant. And I remember sitting down at the dining table after we got this, I think it's £1,000 grant. And we were planning this big holiday we were going to go on after we sold I thousands and thousands of T-shirts. And um, you know, little did we know that that money wasn't even enough to get stock. I mean, there's a quite a sad story around that because we were trying to buy stock from, from a manufacturer in, in, in China. And we didn't realize how expensive it was to get color T-shirts. And... Um, and we didn't have enough money for it. So in the end, we ended up printing thousands of black and white T-shirts that we couldn't in the end flog. So lessons learned. You see, so that's quite an interesting sort of story. You know, you talk about every everybody having their right of passage of sort of making their own T-shirts as students or whatever. I remember when we were at school and we finished school, we would sign each other's shirts or T-shirts as we were leaving. It was kind of like a rite of passage. So maybe you're right. It was always in us to sort of create this T-shirt kind of business. But... Actually, you had a massive learning from that. Do you think like too many entrepreneurs sort of go in without enough sort of understanding of the business that they're getting into? Or do you think that that's something that actually all entrepreneurs have to go through to be able to be successful in the future? What's your views on that? Yeah, I think it could be either way. But I think the one thing that has, I, I think has to be consistent is your ability to learn and, and your ability to learn fast. 
And, and I think when I see, you know, I meet a lot of founders and entrepreneurs, and I think the single defining trait for me is not how much they know or how much they did know about a particular sector that they now operate in, but it's their ability to be able to just absorb knowledge and to proactively put themselves in situations where they can learn and they can learn faster. And I think, you know, when I look back at all the different things I've tried that didn't work, and there's more things that didn't work than the ones that did work, and all of those are just throwing myself in an environment where, um, I can try something and learn from a hands-on experience. And I think whether it's the, the filmmaking um, or, or the T-shirt printing business, you know, there's lessons from each one of those to take. And, and I typically now more proactively, um, I retrospectively look back when things go wrong or when things go right and, and ask myself, would it have been possible for me to learn that lesson faster and if so, what should I have done? And so that's the, the kind of common question I ask myself. And, and it's the trait I think um, founders need to have. I love that concept of asking yourself. I think that's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that about, you know, it's not about necessarily what you learn from it, but how could you have learned it? How could you have learned about it faster? So how could you have picked up the speed and seen some of those problems or issues or challenges you know, or even opportunities earlier in the process I think that's a really valuable insight like I love it when I get guests on I always get something that I think like why didn't I think of that that's such a cool it's such a cool way of thinking about it I think that's a really valuable sort of tip for most people actually in any job that they're doing it's like when you have something that doesn't go the way that you want it to like what could you've done to got to that stage earlier in the process now most listeners won't necessarily know this about you but um you and your family actually came over um, from Tamil and had quite a tough time. You were a young, you were a young kid um, and your family were escaping the troubles of Sri Lanka at the time. I mean, do you think that's, that hit, that's made an impact on you, that that's had, you know, that's made you sort of fight, be a bit of a fighter and like not give up? Or do you think that actually that didn't really have that impact? It's just who you are. Yeah, so I guess my, my parents about I would say now thirty two years ago they they um, migrated from from Sri Lanka uh, over to the UK. I, I was actually born in London, but my um, older brother he was born in Sri Lanka and and, and he came over with my parents. Um, so I guess what it does do is I, I I always look back on the fact that that's a huge risk for anyone to be able to take. I mean, and I think. Every migrant can probably relate to the idea that you're leaving everything you have. And, and especially if you're leaving a war-torn country and you're, you're leaving not out of choice, but out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're essentially leaving everything you have behind. So, you know, your, your resources, your home, your family, your friends, and um, to start in a completely alien uh, uh, world and, and to start from the bottom. And I always think that's a huge risk. And when I compare it with any risk I've taken in my life, it doesn't really compare. You know, I, I would most likely never take a risk of that scale mm-hmm. in my lifetime. So what I always think about is what am I doing with this risk that my parents have taken? They've taken this risk and, and now I have a setup that they didn't have. So for me, it's a question of am I making the most out of what I've been given? And to me, the idea of, uh, you know, being in a job that I didn't enjoy and doing that for a long period of time just to earn a bit more money than my parents did, um, to, to get the house, the car and all of that wasn't me 
um, paying respects to what they had done and what they've given me. Um, they've essentially given me the opportunity to be able to take these risks um, with, with relatively little to lose. And, and I want to make sure I'm making the most out of it. So that's what it's done. Uh, it's, you know, in terms of me pursuing an entrepreneurial career, it comes from that idea. Um, and also, you know, my dad, having grown up in, in a, in a war-torn country, um, was, was quite political from a young age, and hence the reason why my name is Nelson, named after Nelson Mandela. That's um, pretty cool. My older, uh, my older brother's name is Cabrera, named after Che Guevara, and, and my little brother's named Anthony after Mark Anthony. And, and you know, with these names, um, with this name, uh, namesake to live up to, my dad was always about doing more and stepping out of your comfort zone. And I think that came from the fact that he stepped out of his comfort zone um, and I think all of those little things probably, you know, drive you to make the decisions you do. Well, do you know what? I think there's a, like, you know, kudos to your mum and dad when they're listening to this one in honour of them for like giving you guys such great names and, and putting that much, you know, in, in a way sort of shaping you guys to, to do something more than, than just be satisfied with life. So a massive like, you know. Shout out to them when they when they Thank listen you. to this. Yeah. So look, let's talk a little bit about this entrepreneurial spirit because you you know lots of people want to be entrepreneurs, and you talk a little bit about your passion that you've got to do something that you want to be passionate about. You didn't want to just do a job that you could do and earn some money, but it was something that you really felt you needed to do. And, and clearly, the big company wasn't for you. You started your career in some big companies and chose, yeah, that's not for me. I'm not suited to that. How do you think people need to decide what the right career path is for them? Like choosing to be an entrepreneur or not? Like for you, what were the choices that you went through in making that decision? Yeah, sure. So I don't think I started off saying I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And even when I worked at, you know, I worked at a couple of big companies. And, and to be honest, both of those companies had great cultures. Um, it's just I didn't enjoy being part of such a large organization where uh, it didn't matter what you contributed, you know, up until until you got to a certain level, the impact of those contribution was was all, always quite minimal. And so I think when I left the, the kind of larger corporate environment, it was more so to be a part of smaller teams um, where I could have more impact and I can uh, see the consequences of my actions within, within a workplace. And so when I left, it was the intention of uh, joining a, a small company. Um, but... At the time, I just happened to get an idea. We still had our production company going. Um, you know, we were working on a few things. And then we thought, actually, if we turn this into this kind of tech business, we might be able to make enough money to one day go produce our own films. That was really uh, what drove me to, to kind of start the business. Um, so it wasn't the idea of becoming an entrepreneur. Um, but that being said, when I look back retrospectively now, and I, and I hear people talking about, do I quit my job? Um, do I take that risk and do I start a business? There's one common misconception I like to point out is, is that people think by starting a business, you're taking a huge risk. And there's this common association that if you're a risk taker, you start a business. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think there is a bigger risk working for another organization because whether you get made redundant or let go um, is, is not in your control. It's, it's within the control of someone else and many, many layers uh, of hierarchy and authority above you. And to me, that is a risky place to be. 
And, and more so, more than ever before, we realized that during these last couple of months um, that you, it's not a safety net and, and it is being risky um, even if you are being employed by a company. Whereas on the flip side, if you're a freelancer or self-employed or you're an entrepreneur, you are very much in control of, of your destiny. You, you are, you know, no one's letting you go. And, you know, whether you bring in money or not is very much down to you. So to me, starting a business is me being risk averse. And, and me being risk averse is me having more control. So I think people need to flip the way they look at uh, the risk quotient of starting a business is, is what I would say. So, I mean, again, you give a really interesting insight as to how you look at things. And it, it seems to me that you, well, the way that you look at things in general and how probably you've looked at your business is almost to like turn it on its head and, and think about almost like the alternative, the opposite of what normally comes to mind around how you think about things. And if I think about your, your learning platform, I mean, you've got what, five, over 500,000 users on, is that right on on this learning yeah, platform? Right. So yeah. you know, and I've got to say, you know, I've been around the block a little bit. I like to describe myself as seasoned rather than uh, old, right? But you know, learning platforms have been around for a long, long time. But yours clearly has captured the imagination of people, and and I guess maybe it's because you've had this kind of like alternative view of looking at how people learn. So tell us about how like. Like, what makes it so different? Because I'm the skeptic, right? I've been around, I've been in HR, I've seen like loads of learning providers, there are hundreds of them out there. What's so different that people are obviously finding really interesting in your company? I mean, you've raised a lot of money, um, yeah. you've got some good backers, so there's something in there that, that's quite unique. What is it? Yeah, so I, I would say there's a couple of things that have happened. And on, on a macro level, what's happened is um, – you know, like you said, you've been in the HR space and, and you know, when you say learning, typically people refer to the LMS and the LMS within the organization um, to a large degree over the last couple of decades has been used for mandatory and compliance training. It's now, really bad normally, a, isn't it? It's really bad. Normally. Exactly. And, and so it's very much been top down, one size fits all, a, a unidirectional flow of knowledge. Um, and like I said, for compliance and mandatory. And so What's happened, though, is more of a broader cultural shift where people now realize that compliance might save you from a lawsuit, but it's not going to save you from disruption. And that's why some of the biggest industries in the world are being disrupted by startups and scale-ups um, in, in every sector you can think of. And so when you look at, okay, compliance is not enough, we need to essentially build a continuous learning culture um, to, to ensure that we're, we're staying ahead that's when you realize your existing learning technology and your existing learning ecosystem and infrastructure wasn't designed to drive continuous learning. And the easiest way to know that is if you ask an employee in your company, well, you know, when I say learning within the workplace, what comes to your mind? If they turn around and say, oh, it's that thing you asked me to do at the end of the month where I have to do it by a certain deadline and I need to tick that box, then you don't have a continuous learning culture. Now, once you've come to that realization, and we came to that realization, and you know, one thing uh, me and my other founders and a wider team have in common is we've all been victims of really bad training within the workplace. So we know what bad training looks like. So about four years ago, we asked ourselves the question, what would learning look like if you built it from scratch today? That's the question we're answering. We're not trying to retrofit your legacy LMSs. We're not trying to build on top of it. We're asking the question of a lot has changed about work. A lot has changed about the technology and our relationship with technology as a consumer. How do we 
take all of that into account and answer this question of what learning would look like today. Um, and I think that's what's happened. I think that's the, the, the response we're getting because a lot of organizations who had already realized this problem were essentially using a bunch of different tools to hack together solutions so they can drive the learner engagement up. But they were using tools that weren't designed for learning. So when we came about with a completely different focus, a focus of having a single access point for all of your learning, regardless of where that learning lives. So whether that learning lives in dozens of different internal apps, systems and experts, um, or it's an external content library, or it's a blog or a podcast, let's bring this all together into a single front door because even your most motivated employees don't know where to go to find the thing they need when it's scattered across multiple places. And once you've brought it all together, you can now leverage data uh, and AI in a way to personalize learning to make it meaningful. And this wasn't possible when you've got a small manual team who have to essentially personalize it based on what team you belong to uh, or, or what role you belong to. That's not personalizing in a meaningful way. And it doesn't um, address the skills gap crisis you have in the organization. And the last thing that we did was that was quite significant is right now, you typically take someone out of work and into training or into their LMS. But it makes more sense to take the learning and to send it to the places where we work. So embedding learning within the workflow. And that's what we did is beyond our web app and mobile app, we have a Slack app, we have a Microsoft Teams app, and you know, we integrate with Salesforce. So it doesn't matter where you spend most of your day, the relevant learning is only one click away. And so you're able to now learn and share knowledge in the flow of work. So there's a few things that we completely changed in terms of how learning is done within the workplace. And I think that's what people have resonated with. And, and that's pretty much taking a, you know, a learner first approach um, rather than an admin first approach to learning. So let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, we've got to talk about COVID-19. I hate to say it, but we do. I know lots of people are probably like, thinking they're coming away to not hear about it but well hopefully we're going to talk about it in a more positive way we've seen statistics that are showing us that more and more people are taking online courses at the moment as they're as they're homebound and remote working they're using this opportunity to sort of like enhance their skills and capabilities and actually grow um, different capabilities or just learn about new things um, how are you as a company trying to help respond to that because it's clearly a demand that's coming what are you doing to help companies or individuals think think that through, that this is an opportunity to, to sort of grasp new skills and new capabilities? Are you doing anything in that area? Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess in the short term, um, we've got a campaign to support furloughed employees. So any organisation with furloughed employees, um, we're, we're offering our platform for a pay what you want. Now, the, when, when we say pay what you want, people are like, mm, what do you mean? Seriously? If, it's if, like if the honesty it, bar, isn't it? It's like the yeah, honesty bar. It, Exactly. And, you know, honestly, if people didn't want to pay, um, no issue whatsoever. They can have it for free. Um, we're giving it away for free for, you know, three months. They can use it um, and they can support their furloughed employees. Um, but if they did want to pay all of that money, we support uh, an incredible organization called Room to Read um, who support um, millions of vulnerable children who've in particular been affected by COVID with no access to school. And the consequences of them not having access to education is, is significantly worse than what we see in this country. Um, and so, you know, that's where the money goes if you do decide to pay. Now, what you get with that is the, the entire platform. We're not cutting back. Um, and what that does is it saves a lot of time and effort from the perspective of 
um, you know, the L&D team and, and the people team, where our platform already curates a range of resources across every business function, everything from developing skills, but also things to help you with proactively dealing with your mental health. We curate resources around managing your personal finance, and, and all of that is there. So on, on the short term, our platform is there to support your furloughed employees. So if you're stuck and you don't know how to continue to engage your furlough. And that's really important. You want to be engaging your furloughed employees. You don't want them to feel like out of sight, out of mind. And, and you don't want them to feel there's a reason why they've been left out. Um, and so we're there to help with that. But on a more, I guess, mid to, to long term, I think there are a few things organizations have realized now. The first thing is um, this will change a lot of things moving forward and, and digital is here to stay. So all of these organizations who predominantly depended on face-to-face training, they now realize they need to have something in place. And they know that thing is not their traditional LMS they were using for compliance training. That's not the thing that's going to get people uh, engaged. And so they're looking for solutions for that. The other thing people have realized is, you know, newly remote teams are always surprised by how much knowledge is locked up in the minds of the people who work in the company. Mm-hmm. And, and so what you end up doing is you end up slacking or messaging people the same question over and over again uh, to get the answers. And so organizations realize they need to centralize and bring all of this knowledge together. And um, so you can put the collective intelligence of your company to work. And, and that's where something like How Now can help is it's not just a top-down L&D create all of the content, but it's empowering a bottom-up approach where all of your internal experts can contribute to the knowledge pool. So I think there are a couple of the things that we're seeing changing and where we can help people over, over the longer term. Um, and also, you know, we're now reading data and, and stories about how people who had Office 365 for a very long time have, have now started to use it a lot more. So Teams is getting more engagement, um, and, and other tools that you may have had is now getting a lot more engagement. That means what's happening is a digital transformation project that would have typically taken you months is now being accelerated and condensed into a matter of weeks. Now, when that happens, you need to make sure people are not left behind. And in order to do that, you need to um, surface relevant knowledge at the point of need to help people feel comfortable with this new technology. And that's where How Now can essentially help you with driving that digital adoption and, and making sure people are not left behind. So that, that's a few different ways um, w- how we can help. So let's talk about that because I think that's, you know, something that is going to be coming, if it's not in companies' faces today, it definitely is going to be you know, as soon as they come back to whatever we call it, the new normal, the, the abnormal, the new world, the future of work, who knows, right? You can call it anything you want. What we all know is that it's going to be very different to how it's been before. This this idea of the digital transformation, which every company I can think of has said they're on some sort of digital journey. And as you've said, they are trying to accelerate that. One of the key things, and you've talked about it and I've talked about it, is the fact that you know, the automation of certain jobs and certain skills means that there's a whole plethora of new capabilities that are going to be needed in the future. And and equipping people today to have those skills and capabilities is really, really important. So how do you think you can help companies or how should sort of organisations like yourself be helping companies to really think that piece of the strategy through around how do you make sure you've got the right skills and capabilities that you're going to need in the future? Because it's normally an afterthought, right? If we're honest, most companies yeah, will right. like wait until the end and then they're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Like, help, help. 
A great question, Rita, and I, I'm sure you've seen this in your experience working in organisations. But with, with, with skills gaps, it's it's a genuine issue, both as a business but also as a social issue. We're we're essentially saying if people don't start to upskill and reskill, um, they're going to end up being socially and economically irrelevant, and that is a huge problem, uh, both socially and as a business. Now, the first part of that as an organisation is how many organizations actually know what skills they have within the organization? How many people, you know, you get all kinds of KPIs that are measured within a business, but how many organizations measure skills? Now, in our experience, not Zero. many. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's the reason why when you say learning and development, typically the metric that learning success is measured on is completion rates is how many people completed the course um, and, and how many people passed the exam. But what we all know is just because you aced an exam, it doesn't make you great at your job. Um, you need to be able to, that learning is not the end. It's the means to an end and the end is acquiring skills. So the first part of addressing this problem within an organization is measuring skills. So within How Now, what we essentially do is we collect and analyze millions and millions of job posts to identify what the most in-demand skills are for any particular job title. So the moment you join the platform, we know your job title. We can tell you based on market data, these are the skills that you need to have. At that point, for a process of self-review and peer review, and that peer review can be done by your senior colleagues, your managers, um, what we do is almost like a mini 360 Um but to get a perspective on your skills proficiency level for each of these skills. Now, it's deliberately designed to be light touch because what typically happens is companies pay a consultancy to come in and to spend six months to 12 months to come up with a jobs family and a skills family. Um, and by the time that job family and skill family is done, the market and the industry has changed and there's new skills and there's new jobs. But we can now leverage data to get a real-time insight into the skills that are required for each job. And the reason why we base it on self-review and peer review rather than an assessment is going back to what I said before, which is just because you've aced an exam, it doesn't make you great at your job. But what does make you great at your job is if the people you work with can evidence the fact that actually, as a result of you doing this learning, I can see you've acquired these skills and you've become more proficient. So that's the first thing we help organizations do is measure skills. Now that changes the game completely because now you've got a real-time insight into what your skills gaps are. Without being able to identify skills gaps, you can't close it. So now that you can identify skills gaps, you can now leverage how now to personalize learning in a way where it's directly addressing those skills gaps and helping you close those gaps at the speed of business. So are you seeing certain trends come out from that sort of analysis that you're doing? Are there certain skills or gaps that you're seeing certain organisations really lack or that they're really skilled in? Or does it really depend on the, the organisation? I think it definitely depends on sectors more so than the organisation themselves. Like, you know, uh, when we look at banking and finance, what we can see is there, there are quite a few new roles coming in. And as a result of these new roles, there are a lot of new skills coming in. Um, and so what we're helping organisations do is essentially identify who are the people who need to reskill and um, to be relevant in, in kind of today's industry and today's market. So the, the skills and jobs vary, uh, like you would expect based on sector. Um, 
but you know, there are some skills that you could do an annual needs analysis, but you might not get the real insight into what skills are missing within your organization. But this is, is quite black and white in that sense, because you're essentially using data to be able to identify those skills at the speed that you need to. Um, and so people are sometimes surprised. Your managers are sometimes surprised by where they see the gaps. Um, but that's exactly what this is designed to do is make sure you have access to that data. And, you know, it's an important one because right now, Telling a manager that, oh, everyone in your team has completed course A is not really helpful. But telling a manager, these are the skills gaps that you have. And actually, these are the experts within your team who are really good at this skill. So why don't you facilitate coaching and knowledge sharing amongst that group? But without knowing the skills uh, that you have in your organization, you're unaware of the gaps and you're also unaware of your experts. So let's talk about that group that, you know, are the advocates and the champions and the sponsors of platforms like yourself, right? what you're trying to do, which is very novel and very, um, I would say, innovative. How do you get the CEO to be using your platforms? Let's talk about those leaders at the top, the senior leaders that actually, you know, have a very important role to play in this continuous learning concept. Is it easy to get them? to buy into this concept of them, of them actually doing their own learning and assessment? Or is that still work to be done, do you think? There's definitely work to be done. I think we're, we're at the early part of, you know, learning and development and, and using an LMS being a bit of a tick box exercise. And I guess what we're trying to, to help people do is think outside of that tick box and, and look at learning for the actual results it can drive. And I think people need to be able to see that, you know, L&D uh, typically in organizations is looked at as a cost center. Now, I, I definitely don't think it's a cost center. At the very least, it's a value center. But L&D should really be a profit center because you're basically looking at someone who can see where you want to get to as a business in terms of your goals, identify what's holding you back from getting there in terms of skills and capabilities, and then help you plug those gaps so you can actually deliver on those goals. So that is someone helping you get from A to B. And so I think the moment CEOs and and the C-suite give L&D a seat at the table and look at L&D as someone who can help you mobilize your talent in a way that wasn't possible before, I think that's the cultural change and, and really the, the mindset change uh, that we need to see uh, more of. I mean, it really pains me when we're speaking to an organization and we've just showed them the platform and, and they turn around and say, we don't think our people are ready for this. And, you know, by default, my response back to this is, do we, realize, yeah. do, do we realize that the consumer technology we're used to using is far superior than what you're telling people to use um, as an excuse for your LMS. Uh, you know, these are people who are using things like Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, and, and these are people who are teaching themselves how to do things by watching videos online. And, and so consumer technology has come such a long way for some reason, and I'm still not too sure why, when it comes to a workplace context, we tend to think people are less capable than they are when they're consumers. I have a theory about that, but maybe we'll talk about that after the show because, like, you know, I want to be make sure that we kind of cover everything that we need to. Um, but I do totally agree with you that companies need to sort of, like, let their uh, – unleash that capability that actually people learn Absolutely. by doing these days. And when you get an app, you don't get an instruction manual with an app, 
right? You go on the app and you figure out how to use it and that's how you learn. And so I think there are lots of ways to use learning platforms and learning new capabilities. But let's talk about another sector because I think this is an equally important sector to be thinking about now, which is the education sector, which has been massively impacted by COVID-19. What do you see as the future for learning in the education sector? Yeah, that, that is definitely a, an interesting space. And I think, you know, we're, although primarily focused in kind of workplace corporate learning, we're, we're looking at this space thinking, you know, what needs to happen? And what, I think one of the primary requirements that I think private colleges or colleges and schools and universities in general, um, if, if your way of delivering learning is still very much uh, one person at the front of a lecture hall um, or, or kind of classroom and, and kind of broadcasting their message to, to people, then you could definitely digitize that. There is, there's no question about it. The part that is challenging, and I think where um, educational institutes get stuck on, is there's a social learning element. There's a serendipity about being in a lecture or in a classroom with peers and asking each other questions and exchanging that knowledge. That's the large part of being on a campus is, is that social learning experience. Now, technology can definitely help you do that. I mean, the truth of it is a lot of us do our socializing online. I mean, even pre-lockdown, uh, you know, we most of us were probably engaging with more people on social networks than we were physically. And now more so we're doing our socializing on online. So it's definitely possible, but I think that is the mind shift or, or the transformation that educational institutes need to go through to understand it is possible, but it does mean you need to change the way you do things. And, and the common, uh, I think, mistake we're seeing happen um, with kind of educational institutions is they're trying to take exactly what they do within a classroom and a lecture hall directly online uh, in a Zoom call. And, and that doesn't work, right? Because yeah. you're, you're not, it's a different uh, medium. It's a different mode of delivery. And you need to make sure you change your content to suit that. So it's more of a native experience. And um, the other area is the examination part. Now, even pre-COVID, um, with universities and colleges who do use digital learning, when it came to the assessment and exams, most of them still sent you into a school gym to take the exam. Yep. Now, that defeats the purpose. If you've used technology for the learning experience, then why are we not using technology uh, for the assessment part? Also, technology will help us. Um, assess people in a completely different way. Rather than leaving it down to this one final end-of-year exam, we can now leverage technology to create more hands-on ways to practice and see knowledge being applied within the context uh, it should be. And and I think there are better ways to get an assessment of someone's capabilities than an exam. I was speaking to someone recently who's an apprenticeship provider, and they were saying how they've got, um, you know, they've got this particular student who's they think is one of the best students to come through the program, but isn't great at creating reports. And that's what's required for the assessment process. What happens for, to an individual like that? Technology can help us create more of a diverse learning environment. Not everyone reads well. Not everyone resonates with videos. And not everyone learns well within a lecture hall or a classroom. Technology will help us support a more diverse learning community. And I think that's where uh, educational institutes need to look towards. I think that's, uh, again, you know, some really valuable points there for 
for the education sector to take into account. And I also think the businesses, because I think what we are seeing is a shift from learning and from the exam taking, as you put it, to actually what's the skills and capabilities that are going to be needed in the future are those kind of reasoning skills, those analytical skills, those thinking skills, those problem-solving skills. Those are the ones that companies are looking for. So we have to almost change how we have children learn today you know moving from like learning things in rote fashion to actually being able to sort of challenge and question and and understand the whys behind certain things as opposed to just saying this is what you know this is what this passage tells me so I think there's much there's you know significant scope for seeing you know maybe for all of what COVID-19 has brought um, in terms of things that uh, have not been great, there is so much opportunity to go forward in, in how we can think about changing the world of business, the world of society, and really take some of the learnings uh, that we're seeing and, and leveraging technology to, to help us. So, so look, let's just get back on a, cu- like a couple of last questions. And let's, get, let's get back to being a bit more personal. So you and your brother, come on, look, tell me what that, that's like working together. I don't know about... I couldn't imagine working with my brother and sister together. I think we'd last for a, you know, uh, we managed to do it on school holidays when my parents' business, but that's probably about the limits of what we could do. So what's it like starting a business with a family member? Would you recommend it? Well, the highs, what the lows? Uh, to be honest, uh, we, we've done it for so long. And I don't think, I, I can't really remember any any other way. Um you know, it's it's definitely there are certain things that are inherent, like the, the trust uh, that you you have, and and therefore, and that's an important thing to have in a co-founder. Um, we work well. Uh, we're interested in in similar kind of things, and we we share to to a large degree. We share a, a worldview, um, and so I think all of those parts work. But obviously, you know, as siblings, you, you do argue a lot, um, and and that's still there. But we probably spend less time arguing about work and, and spend time arguing about other things. And so, yeah, for, for me, it's, it's been great um, work, working with my brother. And I think, um, yeah, you should really ask him as well to see if he feels the same. He might actually put, a, you know, he might put a comment on when he sees the podcast and listens <laughs> to it. He might have his own views about what he thinks about working with his younger brother. But let's um, talk about, so what's the future? I mean, you've just got this big round of funding. You know, what, what do you see as the future? For, for for your company now, where next? Yeah, I think in the same way we spoke about um, you know the, the industry and the macro level, we're we're still at the early stages of a big change happening in workplace learning, and, and I think you know we're at the forefront of that change. You know, where we are um, coming in to disrupt what is quite a embedded product category of, of kind of LMSs, and we're just at the start of the journey, and it's incredible that we've already got. Um, some some kind of brilliant customers who are really forward thinking and and they're looking at learning as a way where they can drive performance people and real real results and so we're excited by that you know it's the great thing about being at the beginning is there's so much more to do um we've recently in the last year we've kind of launched a partner office in South Africa and we've got organizations we're working with over there um we've just started um onboarding some of our new clients in in Singapore Malaysia and the APAC region um, you know, we're doubling down on um, the US as well. So obviously taking it to more companies. And that's the great thing about what we do. Uh, it is a universal problem. And it's a problem that every organization above a certain size faces. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot more to be done there. Um, we're also very much a product-led um, company. And so we're really excited about some of the, the things we're working on. 
um, to, to really look at how do you drive learner engagement, but also the ultimate goal of how do you connect people to the relevant learning so they can build the skills that matter and the skills that they need. Uh, and there's some exciting stuff that we're working on around there uh, to really start driving even more innovation within workplace learning. So excited about growth, both in terms of product, but also in terms of uh, working with more customers around the world. Well, it's refreshing to hear such a different perspective around learning and development. It's um, been long due um, and your enthusiasm like just resonates through in terms of how passionate you obviously feel about this and, and your commitment to it. So I always have a question that I, I ask every guest, which is what is your daring two moment? So what would you say your daring two moment has been over your life? Oh, Rita, that's a, that's a big one. Um, Daring two moment is, I, I guess, uh, for anyone who's thinking about quitting their job and starting a business, it, it is, although I thought it wasn't much of a, a daring two moment, everyone around me definitely made me feel like um, I was I was taking a huge risk and, and, you know, it was probably the bad move to do. But I think leaving behind, you know, the large corporate life and all the comforts that come with it. And I do think one of the biggest addictions we all suffer from is that monthly paycheck and kind of breaking away from that addiction was was probably my uh, daring to moment. I love the way you describe that, breaking away from that addiction. Yeah, I know what that feels like. Yes, I do. I can remember it well. So, like, look, and I think the only other thing, like, I haven't mentioned, which, I, again, I am hugely passionate about, is to seeing um, diversity in terms of entrepreneurs. And obviously you represent that. I make a big deal about when I have a woman a woman on my podcast, but I am equally passionate about making a big deal about seeing like people from diverse backgrounds actually making it and doing great things to, to sort of move society forward. So kudos to you, because I know that you are um, a great sponsor for Asian entrepreneurs, um, which we haven't really touched on um, very much, but it is important to have young role models that are showing the way forward um, for people that, that anything's possible and that it's the, the diversity that brings us forward. So, you know. Absolutely, Rita. I, I cannot agree more. And we need to see more of it. Um, and, you know, if I can help in any way, if anyone's looking to break into this space and wants to have a chat, um, I'm more than open to, to speaking and having now virtual coffees. But I think it's an important responsibility for everyone to take. Um, you know, whether you're a, a business leader, um, a community leader, um, you know, wherever your circles and social groups are to drive um, the, the kind of mission of diversity, not just because it's the right thing to do, but the net benefit outweighs what we've got right now. You know, you there is so much incredible data around diverse companies performing better and, and just, you know, better products. And I, I think it's not just to do it for that reason, but there is a lot of positives come out of it. And, and so, yeah. So on that note, if people want to get hold, get in contact with you, want to know more about here now, want to access some of those three resources that you're offering, what's the best way for people to contact you? LinkedIn, website address? You you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find out more about what we do on gethownow.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn. We're also on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at at that Nelson dude. And if you do want to get in touch, my email address is nelson at gethownow.com. Okay. And if you want to know more about um, 
Dare Worldwide. You can find us on www.dareworldwide.com. I wish I had such a cool Twitter name, but I don't. It's just at Rita underscore Trahan. Maybe I'll think of adding something like Dude or Dudes. I don't know, maybe <laughs> in the future. Um, but do that. You can you can listen to this podcast. And please leave your comments if you've enjoyed it. And, and do take the opportunity, particularly CEOs out there, to actually take advantage of these learning resources and, and demonstrate from the top how important learning is. So thanks so much for being on the programme. It's been really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Rita. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the conversation? Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of Daring 2. Also, check out our website, dareworldwide.com, for some great resources around business in general, leadership, and how to bring about change. See you next time.